Welcome to WebRush, the weekly talk show that brings you stories of real-world development from industry experts and developers like you and me. Each week, Ward Bell, Dan Walleen, Craig Shoemaker, and John Papa find out what it takes to write, deploy, and maintain apps that stand up to the demands of the real world. And now, here are your hosts. Well, hello, and welcome back to the WebRush podcast. This is Craig Shoemaker, and I am joined by the ever-young Ward Bell. Ward, how are you doing today? I am super excited. I have, and I have every reason to be, because I just got a new walk. It just arrived on my doorstep, and I seasoned it, and I am really looking forward to cooking up a storm in my new walk. Are are you going to share any of it? What do you mean, uh, Craig? Like you got to send me some of the food that you cook. Like I got to sure. And by the time it arrives, it'll be perfect. (laughs) Chef's kiss, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you do send it to me, make sure that you send it in a very secure way. Yes, because that is uh, what we're talking about here today. And uh, I'd like to introduce our guest, uh, Ray Bango, who is a cloud advocate at Microsoft, helping the community practically apply technology to make their jobs easier and better. He's a voice for rising developers, students, security practitioners, and researchers within Microsoft. And he focuses extensively on offensive security, working to develop strong understanding of the threat actor persona and how it applies to the evolving security landscape. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, of of everything so far, the most interesting thing that I've heard is the seasoning of the walk. And I am so interested in knowing that word. I'd like to know what seasoning actually means. Oh, that's a critical, critical step because it arrives uh, with machine oil on it. And that's not a recommended dietary uh, foundation. Uh, No, the the way it's just a big old hunk of carbon steel. And uh, it's by seasoning it, you know, cooking, you know, you heat the thing up, you burn it basically in a little a little cooking oil and stuff like that, it, it becomes very nonstick. You don't need a nonstick surface. You don't want a nonstick surface. So it's a ritual that you go through, and it and the walk gets better the more you use it, that kind of thing. And I'm upgrading from a, from a, a walk I had back in um, college, which was like a couple of years ago. And uh, anyway, let's move on because... Um, <laughs> Uh, Ray, uh, you said something about you work extensively on being a, uh, offensive and I know that that's, uh, that's, that's your metier. Um, what, do, what do you mean offensive security? I mean, tell me what an offensive security means. How offensive are you? I don't yell obscenities at people as I'm trying to hack them. So that's not, uh, Okay. Uh, but, like, <laughs> that's what you do after you've been hacked right like when somebody has a ransom attack, then you, yeah 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 pretty you know it's it's interesting often there's a there's several different different aspects of security most people think of security just within the context of uh defending networks or defending applications and there's so many different areas of security it's, it's such an interesting field you know, whether it's open source intelligence or purple team or threat intelligence, um, malware reverse, uh, reversing, uh, and yes, even offensive security. And so offensive security is actually understanding how, how to use tools to uh, probe different types of infrastructure or applications and try to find the vulnerabilities that allow you to get access to different resources. It's, it's really fun. It's, it's thinking like a threat actor. It's actually working like a threat actor and trying to poke holes in things with the end goal of trying to find how to resolve those holes. How do you fill them and how do you patch the holes that you find? Uh, so when you think about things like penetration testing or red teaming, a lot of the folks that do these things, their their intent is to go ahead and help their clients or their companies uh, find the vulnerabilities and, and, and basically remediate them because you don't want something sitting out there on a public network and somebody that's uh, that has bad intentions going in there and poking those same type of holes. So I'm gonna, I, lo- I like offensive security because it does give me get me into the threat actor mindset. I'm going to display a little of my ignorance here. I'm, I'm used to red hat and black hat mm-hmm. and red and blue team. What, what is the purple team? Oh, okay. So, so let's, let's go back. So red hat is a Linux distribution. So I'm Craig. 
I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna help you on that one, okay? Yeah, I so was thinking can, he was. What's going on? We should edit point that. Let's edit. No, 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 no. That stays, Craig. That stays. That white hat. <laughs> you have white hat. You have black hat. Um, so. You know, purple teaming basically is a concept of uh, bringing together uh, the defenders and the offensive folks to do tabletop exercises in the hopes of kind of simulating um, different scenarios that can help companies better prepare for their engagements. It's a collaboration. It's really working together to uh, to share intel, share information in a more collaborative way. What tends to happen a lot is that when you have penetration testers, or you have red teamers that are going in there and probing systems. Uh, a lot of times, the folks on the defensive side, well, they they don't like they don't like being called out, and they shouldn't have to be called out. This should be a collaborative environment, and I think this is one of the things that uh, a lot of people struggle with. It's the the understanding that when you're doing this type of work, you your end goal as an offensive practitioner is to support your teammates who are trying to defend the very thing that you rely on day in and day out. What, and, and part of the, what's happened in the past, I guess, and I'm, I'm newer to the industry, even though I've been now in this industry for what, I think five years, I'm, I'm the new kid on the block. And so when you hear the stories where the, the penetration testers will find a vulnerability and there or they'll and then they'll rave about it and they they say ha ah, look i got you and it shouldn't be that way you're not out to 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 you know one up your teammate that blue team defender is they're out there they they only get they have to be right 100% of the time a threat actor has to be right only one time and that's hard think about that think about having to protect a 50,000 node network across a massive enterprise, probably spread globally. And you have to be that person sitting in a security operations center, a SOC, analyzing different different telemetry and saying, oh, that's a bad thing. Let me go take care of that. Let me figure out, is it something we have to act on it immediately? And how's it going to impact the business? How do we remediate it? That's that's a, that's a really hard job. And so we shouldn't we shouldn't put down our teammates. We should be celebrating the fine and celebrating the remediation. That's kind of the way I look at it. So John, one of the things I like about AG Grid, which is a, a data grid component for the kind of complex uh, grid scenarios that we encounter all the time in enterprise apps. One of the things I really like about it is that it works for a variety of frameworks, Angular, React, Vue, or, or just vanilla JS. Does that ring a bell for you? No, oh, it really does. There's all these different companies that I work with where they have no choice but to use a lot of these different tools because they have different teams working on them. So being able to port their code or share that code and that technical investment they have is really important to them. Yeah, well, it's important to us, uh, ideally, and we're a consulting company. And, you know, we never know what our client's going to want to use, Angular, React, Vue, but they're all going to need a grid. And it's great to be able to reach for uh, the one grid that works everywhere, AG Grid. You know, at, at any size company, too, because you could have these teams that maybe they only use one framework, but eventually they're going to switch to another one and be able to take that investment again and use it, reuse it is really nice. So if a multi-framework data grid makes sense to you, please go check out AG Grid at ag-grid.com. It feels like almost hopeless. I mean, you know, like uh, LastPass. I, I've been using LastPass for a long time. And, you know, it's their whole life to it's their whole business to not have anything bad happen to them and despite their best efforts and and i still use them uh something uh they didn't want to have happen uh happened and uh so there should be a little humility on this on in this ground for sure uh but you know what it, it's inevitable. So, uh, well, some it feels inevitable. So, so let me speak for some in our audience. We have work to do. We have to build applications, and we're not security experts, and we don't really want to be. Uh, I mean, we want our systems to be secure, right? But 
our, uh, who are we kidding, right? We're trying to deliver value to our customers, and we also want to make it possible for our customers to use our system, not have to go through turnstiles and, you know, do the whole get smart thing with a, with a steel door sliding <laughs> behind you, right? So, so like, how, how should we think about this? How, and, uh, you know, how do we strike a, an appropriate balance? That's a great question. And so, you know, I, I, I left Microsoft um, uh, two years ago and I went to work for uh, an application security vendor named Vericode, actually. And so I got to learn a lot about why developers struggle with security. I was, you know, it was always an interesting question. Having come from a, you know, a development background for, oh, shoot, since 1989. So um, Ward, I think you and I are about the same age now, you know. You flatter um, me, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so security, I could say while I was doing my development work, wasn't my priority. My priority was let's get the work done. We have to get stuff into production. We have to go through all the rigmarole that developers go through and and just put it out there because we have customers who need our product. And so part of the problem is that security isn't isn't taught. If you think about development, we're we're taught to code, you know, code in whether it's C or uh Python or Back in you know Pascal in the old days in CICS, I'm dating myself here a little bit, but you know the, the bottom line is we weren't taught security, and that's still not taught. It's still not part of traditional curriculums, and the reason is because in order for uh, for universities to uh, realize the value and the return on investment they make into creating a curriculum, it takes about five years, and that's a long time. They can't just constantly revamp curriculum. So you're dependent on individual professors who might want to teach something. In most cases, those whatever they build, they build their own curriculum, it's going to be an elective course. And so if you're a comp sci student and you're going through your, uh, your process of getting your degree, most students don't want to add more workload. They want to get through the process of getting to the end of the road and then start working. That's what most people go through. So if we're not incorporating that into traditional education, well, that right there is one of the blockers because people are coming out into the workforce and they don't have the foundational knowledge necessary to build secure code. They don't understand what the patterns are for secure code. They don't understand what the tool chains are and how you can apply them and how you can best leverage them. So they're required to learn this on the fly while also having to meet the needs and demands of their day-to-day -day job. Just like you said, Ward, Everybody's busy and everybody, listen, uh, everybody has good intentions. I've never met a developer that said, I want to build insecure code. Bottom line, I've never met that, you know, um, but we don't have the time to learn. And I can't say that I know every aspect of secure coding. There are people whose whole career revolves around building secure code, doing secure code reviews, uh, understanding the software development lifecycle and how security applies to that. Shoot, there's a massive book written by Microsoft around secure software coding principles. And there, it, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for anybody to build secure software without having something that's going to help them get at least halfway there. And there's tools that let you do that. I mean, there's things like SAS tools, which is static application security testing tools that help kind of test your code base, your resting code base for common security patterns and issues that have been identified. Think of it like a massive threat intel database, right? That your the code could be scanned and say, oh, I remember this pattern. This pattern can cause some issues and give software developers the opportunity to be to remediate. So, so are those readily available? Are they are like is micro? Uh, I mean, I know you work for Microsoft. We're not trying to be a Microsoft selling show. We're not asking you to be a shill for them. But uh, I need, you know, I, like, like I'm saying, I, my clients and I are not good at this. Um, and we want to reach for something. We hope there's some AI or something that's coming. Is there something that I can reach for that uh, will do do a, a job? No, oh, it's funny you said AI. I was waiting. I was waiting to see how long it would take for AI to be dropped here. But I was exactly. planning on bringing it up too. <laughs> yeah, and you know that. Yeah, there's there's so many vendors out there. Uh, Microsoft definitely has their solutions. And um, you look at GitHub, for example. GitHub is the largest repository of code in the world, right? And so. Uh, GitHub 
if you're an open source project, we'll actually offer you uh, some free tooling. So you can do code scanning for common vulnerabilities, uh, for secrets that you might leave in in your code base. I mean, that's one of the big challenges. People still leave secrets inside of their their code, and yeah, so they check in the private your, keys. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, and. You know, so you look at GitHub, GitHub does that. And of course, they have their GitHub Advanced Security Suite, which offers enterprises that capability. But then you have companies like Sneak, and you have companies like Veracode and Sonatype. And all these companies offer their own um, their own version of tooling that can help you do that. Everything from analyzing your code base, both at rest and while it's in production running, but also checking the dependencies that you use day in and day out. You know, it's not like the old days where basically everything was written from scratch. You might have created your own library of common functions and routines that, and then you use that over and over. But nowadays, everything's built from open source, from different vendors, things like that. But how do you know whether that code itself is secure? And as we've seen with the challenges with NPM, with NuGet, with PyPy, uh, these, these dependencies that we're taking on that we're injecting into our code base, they themselves can have issues. Everything from uh, typo squatting, where you inadvertently include a, uh, a component that looks very similar to something that you've used in the past, to even having um, authors that you've used in the past, legitimate stuff that their account has expired for whatever reason, and somebody took it over, an account takeover, and then they injected code. That's happened as well. So all these things continue to happen. And having these tools, that, at the very least, gives you a bridge to solving some of the issues. Ultimately, as developers, we have to be responsible for the code. I mean, it's hard. We have to go through there and we have to at least understand it in some fashion. Um, but it, there's ways of minimizing some of the risks that are involved in leveraging external code bases and also ensuring that the, um, the first-party code that we write is not using patterns that are commonly known to cause issues. You hit on a couple different things um, that I, I want to address. So when we talk about formal education, I think just in general, the, the university system has a hard time keeping up with technology as a whole. And it's, it's even more intense when it comes to security, right? Because there's just new attack vectors. There's new things coming at all the time. And so it, it, it kind of requires us to do on-the-job training in order to keep up on it. So I'm curious, from your perspective, what does it look like to have a mental model that's different? Because when you're writing software, you're thinking about having to solve problems, you're thinking about building a user experience, you're thinking about you know, those types of things. So what should you be thinking about, even if you don't know necessarily all the pieces to fill in, to, to be more of that offensive type of uh, mindset? Yeah, I like that question. There's a couple of ways of thinking about this. One is that, uh, look, if you don't want to be a security person, that's okay. Nobody should ever do something that they don't like. It's just, it's not fun. And, you know, it's yeah, security can be fun to some and security can be like, oh, God, why am I waking up to do this? And let's, let's you know, let's, let's bring people along that really want to take the challenge. And, and for those folks who uh, want to take that mantle, take up that mantle, let's, let's go ahead and nurture that. I think there's an opportunity for companies to identify people who will self-select to be security champions within their organization. They have an interest in understanding the threat landscape. They have an, an understanding the best practices for securing their code bases or their infrastructure or their just in general across the board, everything that's related to security. I was one of those. I developed an interest and I self-selected into that role. And there are many people that I've met over the last five years that had that same exact track and we should go ahead and nurture that i think once you have those folks in place those folks can be the ones that help to create the foundation and the framework for the way that you want to security to be managed within your organization especially within the development process so everything from understanding how to do proper threat modeling to creating reference architectures that you're going to use vetting the components that you're going to be capitalizing every single day, ensuring that you have um, some remediation guidance in case something does happen. All these things can be managed by people who want to be those security champions, who want to understand security and can also contribute to the code bases. There's, there's, there's room for that. But I think companies need to understand that it is a heavy lift. It's not something that's trivial. I don't want to say that you know, Craig, that tomorrow you're going to say, 
I'm going to become a security expert and you're going to just boom overnight. It takes, it takes a lot of work and it takes investment. So if we take part, take aside the um, traditional university educational component, right? And we say, all right, we know that they're not going to get that training there. I, I really wish companies would invest a little bit more in programs internally that help people self-select into these roles. Understanding that there is going to be an investment in money, in time, but in the end, it's going to help them build more resilient software. Does that help in answering your question? Or? It, it, do, it does, but I'm looking at the portfolio of my clients. You know, they're not all giant companies that have that, that, that are willing or even capable of investing in a security expert. Now, I, I, saw, I recommend this sometimes, particularly when I run into something that even I, duh, stumble, and I say, you've got to be kidding. This thing is, you can't do that, right? Even I know that, right? Uh, you got to, is there some way you can get some? But they will or they won't. So, um, and also, uh, people do things that the security expert's not going to know they did until it's too late. So one of the things I'm kind of wondering about, well, I'll tell you, and this is what I use for myself, is I try and ha I have some guardrails and I say, you know, when you get too close to that, you're going over the cliff. So uh, like, I'm not going to write an authentication system. That's a guardrail. I'm just not going to do it. Or I'm going to use a um, an application building framework on the website so that I don't have to worry about an HTML injection of some kind, because the framework, I know this framework I'm using is going to protect me against stu stupid stuff happening. Like there, there's no way somebody can enter a, a value that has a hidden script tag in it, right? But if I wrote it myself, it could get in there. But so, so like, where, are, what are the key, and a lot of us are focused on the web, we're a pretty web, web rush, you know, we're, so what are the key guardrails where you should say, you may not know, but you are, you are, you know, you go around that curve at 60 miles an hour, you're going off the cliff here. <laughs> where, where are those, where are the big three guardrails for you? Uh, you know, Ward, I think you hit on two immediately. And one is um, don't reinvent the wheel for things that you just don't have the expertise. The number of times that I hear about people trying to spin their own cryptography, it, it floors me. I am not a mathematician. <laughs> I am sorry. There's just some things that I will not touch. I'm like, why am I going to try to recreate, you know, recreate a library like Bcrypt, which is a known cryptography library that works? I'm not going to do that. Um, there's people way smarter than me that have that in place. And then, yeah, frameworks are a great example of how you can properly leverage existing works to go ahead and. Uh, resolve some of the common issues, but you have to understand what those issues are. I, I've seen, for example, like I've seen NPM projects, and NPM projects, and I and I'm and I'm going back. I'm trying to remember this, but there was part of an ORM where it would actually do some of the sanit sanitizing sanitization work that you needed to do to prevent SQL injection. And there were projects where it just wasn't being used. And for whatever reason, maybe the developer didn't even know that existed. But the thing is that you have to, you have to be willing to dig into the frameworks that you're using to truly understand what are the switches that you can turn on to enable some of the preventative measures that are there for you. And then you also have to understand... Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that's exactly wrong, Ray. They should be on by default, and you should have to jump through hoops to evade them. So, for example, in Angular, you can, you know, if you want to put something into directly into HTML, you have to use this special long phrase that essentially says, this could be really idiotic. You know, comma. And I accept full responsibility. Right, and I accept full responsibility yeah. in my first parenthesis. Then your text goes in there. And so it's easy for somebody to do a scan of the code to see when you're bypassing uh, something. Um, you mean you don't want to uh, use inner HTML all the time? Come on. You know, that's, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, and it won't let you, right? So um, uh, we got to save people from themselves. We got to save me from myself. I shouldn't have to know how to turn something on. I should have to know how to turn it off, right? I mean, isn't that... And I love what you're best? saying. No, I... I love what you're saying. And so I think what I'm saying is that you have to understand what capabilities the framework provides you to make sure that you are you have the right things enabled 
to give you the flexibility to decide whether you want to do something or not. And that's, here's, here's the thing. There is a balance. One of the things I've learned is that there's a balance. Some organizations need to have a little bit more flexibility in the way that they, they, they build their systems. And sometimes they're willing to accept a certain level of risk because they've, they, they might have mitigations in the back end that help them. So for example, like some of the switches that you're saying should be on by default. I think you're right. I, I would love to see everything from SaaS providers, PaaS providers, you know, all the cloud services. I'd love them to be secure by default right off the bat. How many times have we heard about an AWS bucket being leave, left exposed because by default, that's just a setting or an Azure container that's exposed because there's a, there's a setting that wasn't turned on properly or wasn't, wasn't enabled. I believe we shouldn't. We should. We should force people to explicitly flip switches that are going to make them less secure, right? And make those discoverable, right? Because they know exactly what the implications are. They have right. to be discovered. You have to have somebody else who's looking all the time and saying, "You left that door." Okay, I see that you approved to have that door open. Uh, but you can do a you can do a security audit. Yeah, that actually is effective. Um, otherwise, and it can't be one time either. Yeah. No, no, it, and it shouldn't. It's like, um, the, the, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there's a lot of people that don't know what those features are. They don't understand what those features are. Sometimes they don't care. They just want to put something up. What's that phrase? Let's, let's, uh, let's build something in, or let's, let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. And, um, you know, even at Facebook, what was it? Let's build fast and break things or something like that. Uh, what was that? There was a whole mantra around that. And so there was a period of time where people were just out there just coding, 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 and they would take whatever was available and let's just throw it out there. How many times have you looked at Stack Overflow and said, I'm going to use that code? And then how many times have you actually looked at that code? How many times have you looked at that code and actually determined whether it works? I, I use I use NPM packages and I can't say that I submitted them to anybody. It scares me a little bit. Uh, maybe that's one of the guardrails that you're saying is, you know, you're going to use MP or whatever it is, but I'm picking NPM. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it really seems like there should be a checklist. I agree. And that's kind of, well, OWASP, the Open Web Application Security Project, tries to do their best to help you out. Um, if you if you look up their, the, the resources they offer, they, they walk you through a series of solutions and techniques and best practices that can help developers of all levels. People from, hey, I just want to start learning the basics of security to people who are security architects. They all leverage OWASP to understand what are the best practices for application security. And when you look at some, you know, like I'm looking at the list right now, I'm actually have the list in front of me from 2021. That's the last time it was updated. You look at things like injection attacks and injection attacks are still there. And this has been going on 10, 15 years now. And injection attacks encompass several different things, but SQL injection is still part of that. And so how could, how is it that SQL injection is still a thing this far along, despite the fact that we have frameworks that have capabilities to remediate some of those things, mitigate some of those issues? We still have injection attacks because developers are human. That's the bottom line. We're all human. We're all building code, and the code is going to be fallible in some fashion. And so, I mean... Uh, hopefully, ChatGPT won't take us away, you know, from you know being able to code. But the way I look at it is, you mentioned AI earlier. I'm hoping that AI will will at the very least serve as a, a as a tool for efi building efficiency in the way we build our code. Uh, it'll help us streamline the way our code works. It'll look at perhaps some of the routines and algorithms and make sure that we are optimized. And from a security perspective, I'm hoping that it can identify common patterns that we we just don't we don't observe one of the challenges is as we're writing code especially in real time it's hard for th these systems to analyze code as we're typing it out hopefully ai the ai capabilities of OpenAI and ChatGPT will get us to a point where some of these some of these tasks they get flagged for us in real time i would love to see that i know that companies like vericode for example have tried to do real-time processing within visual studio code and that's a real, that's a really cool thing. Imagine if you're able to save that. It's kind of, it's almost like uh, the best way to describe it. It's almost like an antivirus type of thing. If you look at your you know if you're using antivirus and using Defender for example, they don't store every signature on your system. It would, I mean you would need basically like a petabyte fill up your hard drive. Yeah, yeah. 
um, what they do is they store a subset, right? And then they use the cloud cloud capabilities to analyze um, malware. Well, the real-time capability through Visual Studio Code in Veracode's tooling is kind of like that. It, it has a common set of patterns that it can identify and flag it for you, which is really cool. And so I hope that as AI becomes a much more efficient in analyzing text and code, we'll get there. If you look at what's happening with GitHub Copilot, it's already it's already happening. I mean, we're at a point where GitHub Copilot is making our life more efficient. It's helping streamline the code. It's not 100%. And, I, and that's one of the things that I always stress to people. GitHub Copilot does not write 100% code for you. It's going to get you really far. But you still have to you still have to be that person to validate what the code is doing. Don't make an assumption that what's being auto-generated for you is 100% workable. It may. That's great. Sometimes it does. But you have to be ultimately accountable and responsible for making sure that code works the way that you expect it. Well, when it comes to AI, it kind of seems like, and maybe we're there yet, um, but there, there's some version of reality where we train a model to say that our application is this thing, it behaves this way, it has these objectives, and then we train an opposing model that says, okay, take it down. And these two work together, and at the end it spits out, okay, I mean, it's basically, you know, like the the, the exercises that we do with, with humans. It, it, does anything like that exist at this point? As far as I know, I, I, I don't, I haven't seen anything like that. You know, I, that's, that is more of what's been a manual process where you have, you do have tools like dynamic, uh, dynamic application security testing, DAST, which can go ahead and analyze your program while it's running. And there's a lot of vendors that offer that. Uh, and then of course you have manual pen testing. You have the ability to have people who can try to poke around in your application and see, can they find the most common things that they're, they're, they've been trained for? And so that's what I've traditionally seen. In terms of AI that knows, hey, this is the way that the application works, and this is now I need you to go and bring that puppy down, I, that's probably where we're heading. I would not be surprised. You know, there's already plenty of systems that simulate attacks, like Attack IQ. Uh, I think Red Canary might offer stuff like that. There's, uh, you have, um, uh, gosh, a site that offers attack simulation. But they're, they're, attack, they're, they're, they're trying to simulate advanced threat actors. Here, we're talking about applications. So having AI and AI compete against each other, that's going to be really interesting. I'd like to see, uh, see what's going to happen with that. Yeah, my, my, my thought about that is that unlike, you know, in chess, it's pretty clear who won. So they can play, the two chess models can play each other. In this game, you're just leaving stuff and you will you won't know that you've lost uh until uh you know very occasionally and um that that makes it hard to to use that approach that ai approach to go after this um and you know you need they need a body of 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 losers uh or something where they can look for you know oh, that looks a lot like something else i saw that was a loser which is basically what a security expert is right um, that's why it takes so many years is cause you have to have seen a lot in order to say, Oh, that one, I know about that. And, and that's to, to a degree, that's like what it is in programming, right? I mean, one of the advantages for those of us who've been programming for a while is that we see patterns now and we, we, you know, um, uh, we instantly recognize something as being either good code or bad code. And we, we may not be able to say exactly why, but we can. And that didn't come. I don't think AI models, they are ready to make that kind of judgment. They, they simply tell you what other people have done. Well, if it's but on I my won't, screen, won't it's bad code. If it's on Ward screen, it's good code. I mean, See, there's, now that's easily, you know, <laughs> we can, we can build a model around yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Hey, are you building apps in React, Angular, Node, or some other framework? Well, with NX, you can build your full stack apps in a shared mono repo, integrate with modern tools, and reinforce best practices. You'll get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier that will simplify your workflow. NX also helps you simplify the relationships between applications and shared libraries to make it easier to share more code and develop more consistently across teams. And the best part is you'll build higher quality apps and spend less time 
on configuration. So visit nx.dev to get Narwhal's popular open source toolkit for monorepo development today. Well, one of the things that we haven't talked about, which I think is, is like almost the biggest elephant in the room, is these carbon-based life forms that, that sit behind telephones and uh, keyboards and stuff like that. You know, we, we talked about LastPass. I don't know how their, ha- how their hack was executed, but I know that there's times when, you know, disgruntled employees will leave uh, a company and sell their credentials or people will just be, you know, completely socially engineered. Um, when it comes to thinking of these types of scenarios, what are your thoughts in that regard? Yeah, you know, you look at companies like LastPass and I, and I do feel bad for them. Um, I was a LastPass user as well, so I understand exactly what you, what everybody's feeling. And so uh, we're always going to be the weakest link. There's, uh, if you look at it, and if I'm correct, the way that the LastPass, by the way, the LastPass was a very targeted attack. I just want, that was a, the, the most recent hack was a very targeted attack, um, if I'm correct. And I believe they, one of the developers used the Plex software. The threat actor apparently knew they used Plex and actually somehow did a supply chain attack or, and, or found a vulnerability in Plex and what managed to hack the developer through that i i'd have to look back i I could have sworn that's what it is but it was it was non-trivial but most of the attacks that you see nowadays are phishing attacks it's not like look it's not like you're getting people and saying hey i you know they're sitting in the hoodie and there's these master hackers like you know like elliot on mr robot exactly no it's a lot of times they're just phishing and they're casting a wide net and the malware you get is you know, it's commodity malware in many cases. Um, yeah, you're going to have a th- advanced threat actors that want very specific things, but those are generally targeted. Most, most of them aren't going to blow their their high-priced malware that it took them forever to develop on, I don't know, Joe Schmo. Ransomware is commodity. Ransomware is how far can we cast this net to get make the biggest bang? Yeah, sometimes they're very targeted because they know they're going to go after a company with cyber insurance. or But a lot of that is, a lot of the, you know, you're, I had my mother-in-law who, on her computer, she opened up a, a screen and said, hey, Microsoft Security says they found a virus. You should contact us at this 800 number. I have to solve that for her on a regular basis because it's a human factor. And she's just going through and looking for recipes. I think ultimately, you know, the, if, if, the way I look at it is, I've always said this, if, one, if a company gets taken down because one user clicked on a link, that company's defense systems just weren't set up to to be resilient. And that's why they talk about defense in, in depth. That's why they talk about zero trust, trying to ensure that the um, the the threat, the, the, the risk landscape is really should be considered the individual laptop. That is your perimeter right there. Every laptop in your network should be considered a risk and you should be taking steps to identify what's coming out of that. And there are systems in place for that. There are systems that analyze um, actions that are happening with individual users. There's free versions of it. So like uh, when somebody says, oh, I can't afford this system, there's open source systems nowadays that provide you with those endpoint detection capabilities that you need. Yeah, is is it going to be as, I don't know, as, as comprehensive as what Microsoft offers or Mandiant or, you know, CrowdStrike? Maybe not. But what you want to do is make it very expensive for somebody to poke around into your network. A lot of this commodity stuff, they're casting this wide net and trying to find the least expensive way of of compromising folks. And so if you can make it a little bit more expensive, sometimes that's enough to dissuade a threat actor from targeting. It's not always going to be the case. But you want to make it more expensive for somebody to actually break into your system, increase those. Yeah, so much of it depends on how much value there is on the other side of the break-in. Um, That's right. Uh, so if you, so if you know what kind of software you're building, it, there's a temptation to say, "Well, nobody can make any money from this, so I guess they're not going to attack right. it." Uh, unfortunately, my clients all—they're <laughs> all worth attacking, so I worry for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I get it. And, and, you know, your clients should definitely be, you know, considering, um, considering what their threat model is and what are their assets? What are the most valuable assets and how are they protecting those assets? 
You know, are they ensuring that they are running proper endpoint detection systems? Are they running antivirus? Are they running monitoring capabilities? Is it a managed, do they need to consider having a managed system? Because maybe they are, they're a small to medium-sized business who can't afford to have their own dedicated uh, security team. And that's fine. But they should, at the very least, try to figure out, can they partner with somebody to help oversee their network in some fashion? And there are services that can do that. I, I just, I, I sent you all a link uh, for, it's an open source um, uh, detection platform called, I think it's called Wazoo or Wazoo. Uh, which is open source. I mean, it's still some. It takes time for it to be set up, and somebody has to understand how to use it. But there's there's ways of of doing that. There's ways of capitalizing on freely available software that can at least get you part way through there. Yeah. So one of the things that worries me is how easy it is for me to introduce an npm package in into my client's code. I mean, I you know they. Nobody's looking over my shoulder to do it and all that. And um, I'm counting on things like SNCC or whatever to be watching that, to tell me if it's a bad actor. Uh, but uh, so thank goodness we have that, right? Like, like that's a baseline. You got to have, right? You agree. There's got to be something that's watching every NPM install and saying you, you, you would recommend that blindly to everybody, right? I, I think I think you should have a baseline. Absolutely. I, uh, one of the things that, do you remember a company called NodeSource? Um, by chance, no. word. So NodeSource, no. um, went in the early days of Node, uh, Node.js, uh, NodeSource uh, was the first consultancy dedicated solely to Node.js software development. And one of the things that they uh, they really focused on was building this, this concept of secure and vetted Node NPM packages. And it was that baseline. And they realized that there was an issue with, there was a potential issue coming down the the, the pike with um, just arbitrarily taking open source code and putting it in there. And Adam Baldwin, um, and I think Adam was at, I know he, he founded the Node Security Project, but I think he was at Anyet at that point. Adam Baldwin had called out and said that MPM, there was going to be the NPM Armageddon soon enough because we're going to start seeing malware uh, propagating all over NPM. And sure enough, he was right. And that's why the Node Security Project, I believe, ended up getting acquired. Um, who did it get acquired by? God, I, I think it may have been GitHub. I, 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 I think it was. But ultimately, the point is that Adam knew that this was going to be an issue and was writing software and CV in publishing um, vulnerability announcements around this. And the reason was because we need to have a baseline. We need to have an understanding and that of what was what were viable tools, what were viable packages that you could rely on? And he wanted to build that. And I think it's, I think you, you hit a, you hit on a good point. I think there's something to be said for being able to manage your own repository. If you can, if you can have your own private repo of packages and you feel really confident about that, I think it makes total sense. Is it viable for everybody? I think it, I don't know. I, I think every development shop is different. Everyone has their own nuances. I think if you're just arbitrarily... Why do grabbing... we have to worry about this, Ray? Why is an NPM yeah. sitting something in front of it? Why is NPM letting anything in that's a risk? Come on. I, it's not I... our problem. It's their problem. Or And, and you know, they say the same for, for Microsoft and NuGet, right? What's yeah. going on? I, I, think to, I think to be fair to, to them and to be fair to PyPy and, you know, what is it, uh, RubyGems and all these other repositories, it's hard. It's, it's analogous to trying to uh, moderate social media. How do you moderate, mo you know, all the posts out there? There's so much code floating around that I can't, I, I can't blame NPM or the folks who built NuGet or, uh, or PyPy if things get in there because it becomes a scaling issue. How do you scale out this constant security stuff, especially when you have threat actors who are obfuscating code? That's the other part of it that we don't, you know, unless you're actually actively looking at code if you see a bit of code that's base 64 encoded you're my like you might like be oh, whatever you know no big deal for me i see base 64 and i'm like that's a red flag i'm like okay what's it what is this why is this base 64 encoded into a javascript package this makes no sense to me but for most people they may not even flinch it may not be a big deal and then on top of that you have to have the right tools that actually can decode that type of whatever encryption it is or what, whatever type of hashing they use to grab the malicious code and actually analyze it. If you're doing base 64 encoding, 
to me, that's a clear sign. Like, hey, that's a red flag. Somebody's trying to hide something. And it, it, in fact, if you use any type of endpoint detection system, most of them are going to flag base 64 encoding when they detect it, especially like on a PowerShell command. If you if you see PowerShell followed by a bunch of base 64, you can almost guarantee that there's going to be some malicious activity in there. It's going to be flagged. Somebody's going to say, and that's going to, it's going to set off an alert. Hopefully somebody's monitoring that. Well, it seems like there needs to be a balance because these, these large companies are the ones that have the resources to do what you're describing because, you know, your mom and pop shop isn't going to be able to do that. But at the same time, the, the reality in which we live is exactly what you just said to where, like, there's just no way they could be like, put their stamp of approval on every single line of code that goes in. Um, so, yeah, it, it, but it, it, it seems like as much as can be baked into the process and, and automated, like, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I think what, what, if you look at what, what companies like GitHub have done, Sneak and so on, they've tried to provide the tools as reasonably priced as possible, which is great. Some of them are free. Look, if you're an open source project and you want to test out your stuff, you can go ahead and use GitHub or you can use Sneak, I believe. And I think Sneak, Sneak will give you, um, I think it's something like 100 scans on their SAST and SEA products or something, I, some, some crazy amount. And that's a big deal. If you're able to use that and incorporate that into your CI and CD pipelines to help you analyze your code, right there, you're setting that baseline that Ward was talking about. I think developers need to take that initiative and say, these tools are here. Let's at least leverage it to get halfway there. The hard part comes in when you have uh, development cycles that are increasing all the time, and now you're adding friction to the development cycle. And that's where developers balk. They're like, okay, if it's going to add five or 10 minutes to my, my deployment time, I can't use this. And I'm like, I, I, I you want me to write tests first and do the security stuff. Yeah. Like, come on now. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and, and so the, the, then it becomes like, well, you know, I, I can understand if it's a couple of hours and some code bases are really long. I mean, it's hard, but if you, if you can't wait a couple of minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes before pushing to production to ensure your code is secure, I don't know what else to to offer. I don't know what else to say because I think that what no, it's it's part of like it's just to me it should just be part of the development process. That incorporate these tools which ease the burden, which fl will flag certain things and then try to try to determine the risk based on on what's being presented in front of you and then determine if you're going to push it out to production or not. But if you're not using the tools and then you're just saying, well, it's adding time to my workload, so I can't use the tools. Then we're, we're going to continue to build in secure software. Well, this has been an incredible time. And I, just trying to keep up with all of the different uh, resources that we've mentioned throughout the show to put in the show notes has, has been incredible. So I hope our dear listeners have gotten a lot out of this. One of the things that we like to do at the end of each show is depart with a few final thoughts. And I'm curious, Ward... What are, what are yours? I'm just thinking about all the other dimensions in which I feel insecure. <laughs> but that's that's not probably for WebRush. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, as you can see, my, I'm I'm kind of dry on uh, on things today because um, I've got my wok sitting over there, and I really want to be cooking something. So I'm going to hand it back to you. Okay. Guys. All right, well, I'll do mine, and then, Ray, I'll give you the, the last word on the subject. I, I just think back to, to education, and there's I, the cliche I like to use is that there's always a mountain of new things I need to learn every day, whether that's software development or security or whatever. And so any amount of time that you can spend exposing yourself to, you know, like I was talking about mental models or even specific uh, uh, ways of, of writing secure code is just better just because the more you're thinking about it, the more you're going to do it. So that would be where, where I would land on this. What about you, Ray? I, I think you hit it on the head. Um, I, I always tell people, think like a threat actor. Seriously, even if you're not a, a security person, if you learn how threat actors work and what they're looking for, you, you've, taken, you've taken so many steps forward because now as you're building out these parts of your application, or you're, you're, you're consciously thinking about, oh, that person might try to do this. That's where those mental models come so in. So where do I learn to do that, Ray? How do, I, how do I learn to be a Nigerian prince? 
You know, ah. like how do I? <laughs> no, where do I? You know, I mean, seriously, if I'm, how do I learn to think like a threat act? How do I learn to to think like a bad guy? Is is there? A, you have a favorite novel for that? Go, go to DefCon. No, Defcon's I mean, seriously, no. Defcon, yeah, DefCon's great. I will say that it's a great event, but I think you know ultimately what you want to do is take a course on web application pen testing. Seriously. A lot of them are, there's so many inexpensive now. You go to Udemy and you can find it. There's uh, the Cyber Mentor Academy, who's I, I, Heath Adams. I know him. He writes his, his coursework is really good. It's, I think it's tcm-secsec.com. You know, just basically go to OWASP. Understand what threat actors look for because OWASP does a really good job. One of the things I did was I went to OWASP and they have a project called Juice And in Juice it's a Node.js application with Angular and has a lot of modern tooling. You load it up and you run it, and then you start poking around at different features within Juice trying to find those vulnerabilities, trying to find a cross-site scripting attack or SQL injection, or how do you impersonate a user? How do you escalate privileges? Those things are really cool. And once you start thinking like that, as you're building out your application, you're going to say, oh, I don't want somebody to be able to do a SQL injection attack on this search prompt. So let me make sure I sanitize the inputs in the right way. Let me make sure I'm going through the frameworks and capitalizing on the tooling that my framework already provides to get me part through, get me through this, this issue so I don't have to build it. Let me make sure that that authentication routine you're talking about, Ward, instead of me building it, let me go ahead and leverage what's already built in so that way I don't get popped because I left, I don't know, secrets lying around in code base or something like that. Well, maybe maybe you should produce a, th- a threat of the day calendar, you know, like the, you know, or a word of the day, you know, just thread <laughs> of, the day. Uh, of the yeah, day. of the day, I love that. Something, something like that. The new Twitter that. account for you. There you go. Oh my God. That's awesome. Yeah, it would be nonstop though. I just, I would say it's just like, it'd be a continuous feed. <laughs> oh, there you go. 365 days a year. You only have to come up with those. There you go. <laughs> well, Ray, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, I want to thank everybody who's listened to this. Of course, you know, if you have any code that you want Ray to review, he's always there for you. That's so right. Just, he's there for just, you. Just, just, just let, him, okay. let him know. And I'd like to thank our sponsors, Ideablade, Ionic, Narwhal, and AG Grid. And we'll see you here next week on Thursday here on WebRush. Rush.